I'll invite uh, the rest of us to turn to 1 Kings. We'll look this morning to 1 Kings chapter 8, uh, verses 1 through 11. And uh, let me have the attention of the kids who are here. And just, just let's be honest, I'm asking for everybody's attention. <laughs> uh, but kids, you're going to hear today in the sermon kind of a big word, all right? The word is the word extravagance, okay? I want you to listen for what does that word mean? What does extravagant mean, and what does extravagant worship look like, okay? So think about that today, and then you can talk to your parents about that at lunch, all right? Now, we're going we're gonna to look to God's Word and see what I believe is a picture of extravagant worship uh, in 1 Kings chapter 8 verses 1 through 11. This is the inerrant and infallible word of God. Then Solomon assembled the elders of Israel and all the heads of the tribes and the leaders of the fathers' houses of the people of Israel before King Solomon in Jerusalem to bring up the ark of the covenant of the Lord out of the city of David, which is Zion. And all of the men of Israel assembled to King Solomon at the feast in the month of Ethanim, which is the seventh month. And all the elders of Israel came, and the priests took up the ark. And they brought up the ark of the Lord, the tent of meeting, and all the holy vessels that were in the tent. The priests and the Levites brought them up. And King Solomon and all the congregation of Israel who had assembled before him were with them before the ark, sacrificing so many sheep and oxen that they could not be counted or numbered. Then the priests brought the ark of the covenant of the Lord to its place in the inner sanctuary of the house, in the most holy place, underneath the wings of the cherubim, for the cherubim spread out their wings over the place of the ark so that the cherubim overshadowed the ark with its poles. And the poles were so long that the ends of the poles were seen from the holy place before the inner sanctuary. They could not be seen from outside. And they are there to this day. There was nothing in the ark except the two tablets of the stone that Moses put there at Horeb where the Lord made a covenant with the people of Israel when they came out of the land of Egypt. And when the priests came out of the holy place, a cloud filled the house of the Lord so that the priests could not stand to minister because of the cloud. For the glory of the Lord filled the house of the Lord. This is the word of the Lord. Would you bow with me in prayer? Father, this is the word that you have given us today, and it is a word that points to your holiness, to your glory, and draws us into worship. So as we explore this word, I, I pray that I would fade into the background, that I would decrease, that Jesus himself might increase in our eyes and in our hearts, 
And so, enable, and so inflame the hearts for worship. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. How big is your God? How glorious is your God? How how holy is your God? Is he captivating? Or does your God fit nice and neat into the corner of the room, ready and waiting for you to pull him out when you need a favor? Is the relative size of your God influence your worship? He actually does influence your worship, but how? This picture, 1 Kings 8, is a picture of extravagant worship of an awesome God. Now listen, the Israelites, they don't always get it right. King Solomon does not always get it right. But this passage, I believe, is somewhere in the ballpark of appropriate worship. Our focus, though, this morning as we look to this text is not on on them. Our focus is on the God whom they worshipped. We're going to look to this text, and I'm following an outline that I have borrowed from a commentator named Philip Ryken. We're going to look to... To the God who deserves praise, uh, to the God who demands sacrifice, and the God who dwells in awesome holiness. First, the God who deserves praise, as we see it in the first four verses of this passage. What's going on here? Well, maybe uh, a more recent example will help us to, to get a picture. On July 11th of 2021, we held our first service of worship in this building. It was the transition of our worship from nine years of, of temporary housing in, in a YMCA, in a, uh, in, in a, in a wedding venue, to, to come to the place that the Lord had, had given us as a permanent place for worship. Now, I want you to imagine for a moment if on that morning of July 11th, 2021, we had gathered first over at Matthew's Manor in Springville and then processed down Highway 11 on foot to this building. But we weren't merely walking, we were also carrying this pulpit, these tables for the Lord's Supper, the baptismal font walking down the road, but every six steps we stopped that we might sing a hymn of praise to our great God. If you imagine that scene, you then might have some some grasp of what was taking place here in 1 Kings chapter 8. The people had finished the temple, and it was to be their permanent place of of worship there in Jerusalem. And so at Solomon's leading, they carried the ark, the ark of the covenant, 
up from its temporary housing the, in the tabernacle, the tent of meeting, down in the old section of Jerusalem, that was the, known as the city of David, up the hill and into the temple. But what was the ark? Well, essentially it was a box, a, a, a trunk, so to speak, but it was glorious. It had been commissioned by the Lord God himself as he anointed Bezalel with the gift of craftsmanship to make this ark and to, and to overlay it with gold. It contained the, the two tablets, the, the Ten Commandments. And they were to be brought up into the temple. The ark itself, it, it served both a, a physical purpose and a representational purpose. The physical purpose was to, was to hold those two tablets, the Ten Commandments. Now, now mind you, those two tablets containing the Ten Commandments, they were the stones that had been written on by the very finger of God, containing the, the summation of the holiness of God, of the description of His character and the commandments that He had given to His covenant people. They were to be brought up into the, the temple, but, but the ark itself served more than that physical purpose. It also served a representational purpose. It represented the name of God. It represented the very presence of God. And yet, I describe that as a representational purpose. Uh, we will look later to the rest of this chapter and we'll see Solomon's prayer. And there in verse 27, Solomon himself will pray, but will God indeed dwell on the earth? Behold, heaven and the highest heaven cannot contain you, how much less this house that I have built. The temple could not contain the presence of God. The ark most certainly could not contain the presence of God, but it represented Him and His presence. It's easy for us to miss the significance of that because, you see, we live on this side of Pentecost. And at Pentecost, God Himself, by His Spirit, came to indwell in the hearts of believers as a permanent indwelling presence. We carry the presence of God wherever we go as believers, but, but there... In that time in redemptive history, the Holy Spirit had not yet come as a permanent presence for believers. And so the ark represented the presence of God dwelling among the people and was to be located there in the temple. So Solomon brought the ark that the Lord might do just that, that he might dwell among his people. It was, it was a national celebration the, the elders were gathered, the, the heads of the tribes, the fathers of the family, and all the men, they gathered together at Solomon's beckoning that, that they might form the processional. It was their act of praise, a parade, if you will. But we celebrate parades at certain festivals, certain special days. The special day here was, was located in the seventh month where there was a feast. The feast in the seventh month was the Feast of Tabernacles or the Feast of Booths. 
that feast was the feast that God had given the people to celebrate the time of, of His redemption, redeeming them from slavery in Egypt, and, and the time in which they were living in tents, temporary housing, wandering in the desert. And yet here, during the Feast of Booze, the Lord Himself was moving out of a booth into a permanent dwelling place it was a glorious day but on that day their their praise was mingled appropriately with sacrifice because their God demanded it the whole scene recalls an earlier time when King David first brought the ark back into the city we see the account of his bringing the ark in and in 2 Samuel chapter 6, verse 13, there we read, And when those who bore the ark of the Lord had gone six steps, he sacrificed an ox and a fattened animal, and David danced before the Lord with all his might. How does that sound to you? Does it seem a little slow? A little tedious? Maybe a little inefficient? Maybe a bit much that thought say about us though maybe it's just me what does it say about us when we think about how long it took for them to bring the ark in and let's forget for a moment about the time how about the number text tells us that on this day on the day when they brought the ark not into the city but into the temple they sacrificed more oxen and sheep than they could count. Well, if you recall back in chapter 3, verse 4, we heard that Solomon used to offer a thousand sacrifices at Gibeon. And if we fast forward a little bit further, as we will eventually do, to verse 63, we'll see that, that they offered 22,000 thousand oxen and one hundred and twenty two or one hundred and twenty thousand sheep so how many is too many to count you start to get some relative size of the bloodbath that is taking place that day as they brought the ark up to the temple whatever number it was it is certainly extravagant this is a picture of extravagant worship but why why the National Assembly? Why the sacrifices? Because God is big. Because God is glorious. Because God is holy and He demands sacrifice. The book of Leviticus outlines for the people what worship was to look like in the Old Covenant as they looked forward to the coming of Christ. And there in in Leviticus, there is provision for, for five offerings. The burnt offering, the grain offering, the peace offering, the sin offering, and the guilt offering. These sacrifices on this day of celebration must have been some combination of the last three. The, the peace offering, the sin offering, and the guilt offering. Now, the peace offering was 
was an offering that celebrated the covenant relationship that existed between God and his people. The sin offering and the guilt offering were offerings meant to reconcile God's people back to God by virtue of their sin. See, God demanded these offerings and the people willingly offered them. They they model for us an appropriate measure of extravagance. The scene didn't end there. Verses 6 through 11 give us a picture of the God who dwells in, in awesome holiness. Everything about this scene, everything about this text communicates awesomeness. We've got the ark in the holy of holies underneath the wings of the cherubim. What were those cherubim? Quite literally, they were guardian angels. Back in chapter 6, we saw a description of those cherubim. They were representations of the angelic cherubim. Their their size itself spoke to their glory. The cherubim there in the temple were had a wingspan and a height of ten cubits. Now ten cubits is fifteen feet wide from wingtip to wingtip and tall, but there were two of those cherubim. And so placed wingtip to wingtip, they they span the width of the Holy of Holies. Now to put that in perspective. I want you to look behind me, these, these acoustic panels. If you look to the top of the second one, 15 feet. If you measured across the width of this platform, 30 feet would almost run from side to side. That gives you some sense of the presence of these cherubim that, that are spread out over the ark. They were Beautifully crafted out of olive wood and overlaid with gold. They were massive. And they pointed to the holiness, the glory, the weightiness of God. And they stood guard over the ark, stating, you dare not approach casually. Because our God is no featherweight. This was the scene. But that scene was not meant for the public. You see, there was a veil that separated the most holy place from the holy place outside. And no one could pass by that veil except for the high priest and he but once a year. And when he went back there, he went through an extended season of ritual cleansing and they tied a rope around him in case something happened to him on the other side of the veil that they might drag him out. Even this, but there's this little detail in verse 8 that gives us some hint of the mystery of all of this. Verse 8 tells us that you couldn't see behind that veil but Maybe you could get some sense of the poles that were used to carry the ark. You see, 
Verse 8 tells us that they were so long that they could be seen from the holy place just outside. Now, I don't know what that means. I don't know if those poles uh, stuck through the veil or maybe they, they protruded up against the veil so that you could see the impression of the poles. But it accentuated the mystery of God, the God who could not be seen, but the God who drew his people in. Then there's the glory cloud. See, God took such delight over the whole processional, over the temple that he came in delight to dwell in the temple such that the priests couldn't stand. It's not that they couldn't breathe through the smoke. It's that the presence of the Lord was so strong and so powerful that their strength was gone. They could not stand in his presence. Everything about this passage, everything about this picture, it combines the details of God with the mystery of him. And that combination is so fitting. Intricate details point to an unfathomable truth. How big is our God? Perhaps the best way to consider his size is to consider the size of his creation. Have you ever stood outside on a, on a clear night, far enough away from the light pollution of the city that you can you can look up and see the starry host. You look up on those nights, you feel small, don't you? In a good way. It is a beautiful sight as we see the majesty of God in the heavens above. And yet even that glimpse that we see on the clearest of nights is, is but a small sample of the size of the universe. Scientists estimate that it would take 92 billion light years to travel from one edge of the universe to the other. Now, a light year is the distance that it takes a particle of light to travel in the span of one year, or somewhere around 6 trillion miles. So for the math majors in our midst, I want to get a sense of the size of the universe. Multiply 92 billion times 6 trillion. I think we are getting fairly close to infinity. The Lord our God spoke it into existence. In, the, in a moment in time, by the power of His Word, how big is our God? He is infinite and eternal. He is holy, 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 and He is worthy of worship according to the weightiness of His glory. And as amazing as all that sounds, as amazing as the bigness of God of his transcendence, of his holiness, sounds, it's not the most amazing thing. The most amazing thing is that this God is not unapproachable. 
that this God is near to the brokenhearted. Given you an outline that speaks to God's holiness, to His otherness, His transcendence. We need to understand that Jesus Christ is the visible image of the invisible God. And to get a sense of the nearness of this holy God, we we simply take the outline that I have given you and, and consider it in reverse. Point three, yes, God dwells in awesome holiness. And John 1.14 tells us that Jesus is the Word who became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen His glory. Glory is of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Point two, yes, God demands sacrifice and He demands it because of our sin. And Hebrews 10, 12, and 14 tell us that Jesus offered Himself for all time once as a single sacrifice for sin. For by a single offering, He has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. Point one, yes, God deserves praise and we saw that praise in this text as the leaders of Israel gathered to offer him praise and Jesus invites the children to come to him and he beckons us to come with that same childlike faith that we might offer him praise in his presence the text Pictures extravagant worship and what that looked like at that time in redemptive history. But what does that extravagant worship look like for us here and now? First, let's consider the definition for extravagance. Kids, I asked you, what does extravagant mean? Well, here's what the dictionary tells us. Extravagant is lacking restraint in spending money or resources. To lack restraint is is to not be held back. We hear that. Maybe we read it in the dictionary and see lacking restraint in spending money and resources, and we think, hey, maybe there's a negative connotation to that. And on some occasions, extravagance can be a negative but it is appropriate. When the object of our extravagance is infinitely worthy, what restrains us? What holds us back from appropriate extravagance? There be a lot of answers to that question, but most of them are centered around one word, self. When we live with a small God and a big self, our lives of worship are, well, strained. Three weeks ago, I was in New York City for a, for a class, and I was there at, um, I guess, a rather unfortunate time. It was when the smoke from the Canadian wildfires infested the city. 
it was kind of an eerie feeling. We walked out at lunchtime, and, and you could cut the air with a knife. It would choke you up, and you look out at the sky, and there was just this orange haze. What once was a bright, brilliant sun that you couldn't gaze upon looked like a dim orange ball. And there was this haze over everything. The smoke polluted our view. That's what happens when self takes over. It pollutes our vision of God. Our view of God becomes diminished. And when He is small, when He is obscured, Our worship is small. Our worship is restrained. So what might it look like to cast off the chains of restraint, particularly in the context of worship? What might extravagant worship look like for us rather than offering bloody sacrifices of sheep and oxen so many that none could count. You recall, our vision team has considered that question. And we talk about it in our vision plan. As we consider our worship, we've considered a movement, a cultural movement that we desire to see in some sense. Prayerfully, I hope we are seeing, but it's a, it's a cultural movement we'll never fully complete. We consider that cultural movement in three categories and I believe they represent the application for us for this text they are if you will the so what for us today as we consider this passage first there's a call to worship that that moves from worship marked by preference to worship marked by reverence Preference, by definition, is what I prefer, what I'm used to, is what I feel comfortable with. Now, mind you, we're not merely talking about music, and it's telling that when we think about worship, we think about music. We should include music in our worship, but we're talking about all of worship, and in all of worship, We tend to want others to fit into our box. I want to impose on others my expectations in context of worship in terms of apparel, in terms of instrumentation, in terms of hand raising, whether to do it or whether not to do it. You know what I'm talking about. Each of us has our own preference and mindset on whether raising our hands in worship is reverence and therefore all should be doing it or whether none should be doing it. But where's our focus in all of these intramural conversations? Self. Preference of self. And that's what happens when I base my expectations for worship around my focus on self. But reverence is not a matter of style. Reverence is a matter of focus. And for us to worship, 
with a focus on our triune God, we must be free. So are you free of self and free to focus on the Lord God triune? Let us worship with reverence. Second, there's this call for a movement in our worship from worship marked by restraint to to worship marked by celebration. It's called to be freed of the restraint of self and free to worship and to actually enjoy God. Now that celebration isn't always happy. Sometimes it is weeping, but it is free to express our emotions in celebration of the God of grace. And so are we free to be honest in our music? Are we free to be honest in our confession before the Lord when we are free to weep and free to shout with acclamation of joy? Then, then we will be free to celebrate the gospel of grace. Let us be free, brothers and sisters. Third, the call for worship that that moves from worship marked by routine to worship that is marked by expectancy. To expect to encounter the living God. This text gives us a picture of people who expected God to dwell in the temple. People who worshipped because they expected God to show up. And their worship reflected it. Do we expect to encounter Jesus? Prayer. Do we expect to encounter Jesus in His Word? Do we expect to encounter Jesus in our celebration of the sacraments? I believe the Word is calling us to be free in our worship. To experience living God. And what does that look like when we put it all together, not only in our corporate worship, but in our lives of worship? Well, I believe the Apostle Paul tells us in Romans chapter 12, verse 1, he says this, present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God. This is your spiritual worship. Spiritual worship is all in worship is to sacrifice myself, my desires, and give myself fully over to the living God. That's what this text is calling us to. So are we as a people free enough to worship in this way? Where do we find that freedom? It is only found in Christ. This passage is a picture of holiness. It is a picture of of transcendence. Everything about their processional speaks to it. Everything about the design of the temple reinforces it. We've talked about the ark. We've talked about the holy of holies. We've talked about the cherubim, but there is that veil. That veil that separated the holy God from the people outside. It kept out all but the high priest. Tried to show how Jesus 
came near. Jesus shows us that God is not merely holy and distant, but that He is holy and near. That Jesus does not image a God who is any less holy, any less glory, but because He came. Because He died. In Him, we have access to this transcendent God. Not paying attention in the Gospels, it almost feels like a throwaway mention. It's ripe with meaning. You see, there's a cutaway in the Gospel accounts from Jesus on the cross. The Gospel accounts tell us of the agony that Jesus experienced as he died our death in pain on the cross, but the point of his death. The scene changes to the temple. And it tells us that what happened in the wake of Jesus' death was that he gave us access. And it gives us a clear picture. Matthew chapter 27, verse 51. And behold, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. The veil that separated the people from the holy God was torn asunder because Jesus died. In our place. And now, sinners like you and I have access to the Father. Where do we find freedom from restraint that we might worship the Lord of glory? Find it in Christ. And in Christ alone. I close with yet another Bible passage. 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 17 and 18, there again, Paul tells us what benefit we have on this side of the cross, on this side of Pentecost. Second Corinthians three seventeen and 18 say this, Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we all, with unveiled face beholding the glory of the Lord are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another for this comes from the Lord who is the spirit brothers and sisters of Christ church the veil is torn and our God our father beckons us to come brothers and sisters our God is awesome And he is worthy of extravagant worship. And so trusting in Christ alone, let us live lives of worship that reflect our awe of him. Amen. Let's pray. Father, you are an awesome God with an awesome plan of redemption that you have secured for us in our awesome Savior, Jesus Christ. And so we pray by your awesome presence spirit that we might live lives of freedom to worship you as you are so deserving that worship shape us by it we pray as you fill us in christ in his name we pray